0: We bless you to know Holy Spirit, speaking, inspiring, leading, that we may receive the word of God is put in your heart for us tonight. So sock it to us. For the glory of God. Amen.
1: Cool. Oh jeez. This one makes my voice go lower. I'm just kidding around, guys. That's a little <laughs> flavor for you. This is on? Let me just get the PowerPoint up. That's right, guys. There's a PowerPoint. I uh, I just thought what everyone wants to do today on a beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon, you're going to want some PowerPoint, right? That's how, I, that's how we roll. Okay, cool. Just while we're loading that up. Can everyone hear me all right? I feel like it's kind of quiet. Is that all right? Hello. Okay. That's probably better. That's good. Okay. Right, so um, I've been trying to pull together a few different ideas um, for this, uh, this talk. Um, and most of it sort of comes from what I've observed over the past six months to a year. Um, but it hasn't taken me that long to write it. So I've been kind of like formulating some of these things. Um, and when, our, um, when you get a request or something like that to, to speak, you don't always know what the theme is going to be that month. So I went through to the office, through there, and I looked up on the wall, and it said "Hope and Joy." I thought, "Oh, that's cool." I spoke on Joy last time, so that means by default, I need to speak on Hope. So that's good. That kind of narrowed it down for me, which was really, really good. Um, how are we looking? Nice, awesome, thanks, man. It's cool. It's not essential. It's more. It's more a, a garnish. Okay, cool. We'll we'll crack on anyway. So um, just before I uh, start speaking, I just want to kind of put a little disclaimer in there that I'm going to be talking a little bit tonight about politics, um, which is obviously a heady topic. You know, you're always taught around a dinner table, never talk about religion or politics. Well, I thought we're 50% of the way there. We're already talking about religion. Let's talk about politics as well. Let's go the whole hog and see if we can offend everyone. Um, So no, yeah. basically, this is my political disclaimer. Please do not be offended by anything that I say. Um, I'm uh, not going to be pushing any type of political view at all. I'm not going to be doing anything like that. If it is, it's completely inadvertent. Please do not read into anything that I'm saying as pushing a particular political viewpoint. More so, what I want to do is I want to talk about and address the way that we talk about politics and the way that we talk about the way in which we see the world. Um, so yes, that's what I'd like to do. So uh, we're going to start off. We're going to talk about the power of hope. Okay, so in 2004, a junior US senator took the stage for a 20-minute speech at the Democratic Convention, and it catapulted him into fame and positioned him for a future presidential race. He talked about a version of America that could exist as if it already did. His message later simply became, yes, we can. He talked about a faith in simple dreams and an insistence on small miracles. He asked the crowd, do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? The voice came back from the Democratic convention Loud and clear. Hope. Plus cynicism is quite hard to say as a group of people. (laughs) He also said that I'm not talking about blind optimism, that things will fix themselves. Instead, I'm talking about the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. I'm talking about the hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. Hope in the face of difficulty. Hope in the face of uncertainty the audacity of hope. In the end, that is God's greatest gift to us. This is Barack Obama's words, not mine. I'm uh, paraphrasing. The bedrock of this nation, a belief in things not seen. I believe that we have a righteous wind at our backs and that this country will reclaim its promise. Now, they're pretty inspiring words. I actually watched the whole of that speech uh, the other night um, as I was writing this. And uh, regardless of what you think about Obama, he's a very, very powerful orator. Um, and uh, the, those words uttered in 2004 inspired a whole generation. And it went on to, uh, he went on to become the 44th president of the United States and, of course, the first African-American pre- uh, president, a seeming impossibility in that country. Now, Obama's message was so powerful... That he gained supporters across the world, not just in his own country. And I remember as a first-year university student reading about the presidential race in the papers and being excited about it. And it's the first time I'd ever really paid attention to an international um, uh, election or anything like that. Um, and it was because there was this this outsider, this person, that you were like, how is this guy kind of in front of all these people? I mean, he's called Barack, which rhymes with Iraq, and his middle name's Hussein. How is this happening? How is he like the, the present uh, presidential candidate and the the hopeful president of the United States. But I was so excited that a message of hope could be mainstream, that it wasn't a politics of bringing other people down, but it was a politics of building up. And that hope is contagious. That hope is powerful. And to speak in words of hope is to share hope and to ignite hope in others. Moving forward to 2012, it was an interesting year for me. Um, I uh, spent the start of uh, 2012, so it was still 2011, um, in my flat in Cardiff. Um, I was on my own um, because all my friends were going to a party and uh, my ex-girlfriend was going and I didn't want to make things awkward for her. So I, very, I was working the next day. So I decided, right, I'm going to stay in. I'm going to make some music. The Mayans say it's the end of the world anyway, so I'm going to just stay in. I'm going to make some music. And, uh, and I just did that. And it was on my own. It, and actually, there was parts of it that were actually really, really good. However, um, as midnight approached and I was thinking about my next day of work, I sat there at the fattest I've ever been, <laughs> um, and uh, I smoked a jazz cigarette and uh, and went to sleep. And I did, but the last thing I did before I went to sleep in that very very depressing moment for me <laughs> was I, I just proclaimed that this next year is going to be better. This previous year, the previous year, and the years preceding it had just been pretty pretty rubbish and um, or seemingly pretty rubbish. And uh, I just decided, right, this is, this, is not, uh, this is not how I want my life to be. So uh, I went on and I lived my life <laughs> in 2012. The world didn't end as the Mayans uh, predicted. Or maybe, uh, whatever. I don't know too much about Mayan history. Maybe someone else can fill us in on that. Um, it was in the August of this year, though, however, that I, uh, I started dating Beth, who is now my wife. Spoiler alert. And in, uh, in that November... We went up to Scotland to stay with uh, my grandma. It was my grandma's 80th birthday. And uh, my mum and dad brought the film um, Father of Lights uh, with them. Um, And if you've seen this film, it's absolutely amazing. I heartily recommend it. Um, The film is essentially the filmmaker set out to explore who God is. That's basically his kind of like investigation of it. Um, But it's really powerful. and uh, it was even more powerful for me because I hadn't really been walking with God at all for about seven years. So I'd been, uh, been away from things um, for a really long, long time. But through virtue of, of starting to date a pastor's daughter, <laughs> uh, these things are kind of start, like, started coming back into my life. And um, I'd started talking to God again. And um, no more jazz cigarettes, I should say should, uh, should there, of course. And um, I started kind of like pulling my life back into line Um, And I was noticing a a difference. Um, But I still felt really, really far away from church at that point. I've really felt like, uh, you know, as a teenager, you put a lot of blame on things on church. You know, the way you feel it. I'm so misunderstood. You know, Um, and you kind of uh, something hardens in your heart. Um, and I just didn't feel that it represented anything about me. Um, and I thought, basically, my, my viewpoint was that I thought the church was full of hypocrites. I thought that um, that people kind of went on a Sunday, and, and that was it. It didn't really affect their life in between. I, I um, I'd grown up in a in a great church, and I. Um, but I just kind of been put off by a few things. Let's just let's let's leave it at that. Um, However, uh, as I was w- watching this film, my heart was like softening. I could feel it uh, softening up, and uh, I saw some amazing people in that film speak and act in strength. Um, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a who's who of modern charismania, This film is pretty good. Um, th- there's all the hits, um, and there's some great moments of just like ordinary people who just like move to China and start a children's home. And there's this beautiful scene that just Absolutely wrecked me of this, this guy just hugging his uh, adopted Chinese son. It's just a, it's, it's an incredible moment, an incredible picture of who, of who God is. But um, there was uh, one voice in this film that really, really stuck out to me, and that was it was the first time I'd ever heard Bill Johnson speak Bill Johnson from Bethel in Reading, in California, not near the M4. And uh, he said something along the lines of, We can turn this thing around. And it was the first time I'd really heard someone sort of say that, uh, someone sort of say that actually the general narrative of history isn't kind of, if you imagine the chart is kind of going downwards to an eventual decline and the end of the world, but it was actually this idea that actually if we, if we bring the kingdom of God here to earth, then uh, we can t- actually turn this thing around, that we're not, we don't have to look into this like, situation which is gradually going to become darker and darker and darker but actually that we could bring light into that situation. Um, and it, like I said, it was the first time I'd heard that. And like uh, Obama addressing the, the, the nation, uh, these words addressed me as someone who believed in Jesus, uh, and it shared hope with me and it ignited me. Um, and it was the hope that I heard, uh, heard and, and saw in this film transformed the way I saw the church, transformed the way I saw the world, and it transformed the, the way I saw the narrative of history. And the thing I want to kind of get across to you guys tonight is that hope and joy are not trivial things. They're not these, like, fluffy things that we kind of color the words in when we're in Sunday school. Um, they are vessels that carry the love, the light, and the life of God. So the words in the film were instrumental in bringing me back into a relationship with Jesus. And I saw the hope, and it directed me to choose life over death. Okay, we need some science. Okay. When I tell the story, you might see why I undernarled about having such a cute picture of a rat on the screen. Um, So there was a researcher called Kurt Richter, and he was a researcher at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, which is legit. And he was performing an experiment to test the effects of water temperature on endurance. Now, uh, after he kind of obviously dipped his elbow in the water and done all that sort of stuff, that kind of science only takes you so far. So to do so, he needed some rats. So he placed some rats in jars of water, and saw how long they swam for, without food, or rest, or a chance of escape before they died of exhaustion. So it's it's a sad tale for the rats. Um, Now what they found was really interesting. They found that even if the water was identical in temperature, the rats swam for very, very different amounts of time. So some rats would swim for 15 minutes, and then pack it in, and, and unfortunately drown. And some would swim for 60 hours and then they would obviously die of exhaustion and, and, and go like that. And they, they sort of looked at it and they thought, well, it's not the temperature of the water because there's so much variance going on here. It can't be the, the effects of the water that are doing this to these rats. So they started thinking, like, do these rats like, have like, some kind of conviction that they're going to survive? Is that, is that something? Has something happened in the control of the experiment that means that these rats think that they might escape? Um, and so what they did was, they, uh, after all their first rats were dead, um, they put some more rats in some more jars of water um, and let them swim for a bit and then remove them. And then they put them back in their cage and let them rest. And then they brought them again to the water and they kind of put them in and they kind of coughing away. And then they picked them back up and they, they put them in a cage. And then they did this a few times. And then um, they ran the experiment again. And uh, what happened was that nearly all of the rats swam for uh, an average of 60 hours. So the kind of 50-minute ones, the half-an-hour ones, a couple of hours, all that sort of stuff, all of them swam for an average of 60 hours plus. So I imagine that's quite a feat anyway, but uh, they literally swam to the point of exhaustion. And what they realized was that uh, these rats suddenly had like a hope of rescue, that they saw that what they were doing um, might lead to, to rescue. And they saw that those rats that had maybe died within 15 minutes in the first set were essentially devoid of hope that without the hope that they would survive or the hope that there was something better coming at the end of all of this, they literally just gave up. They just went, well, I'm not oh, 15 minutes. That's all right. Um, like, it's not that great being a rat anyway, is it? you know, like it's nothing good on. And, um, but it was literally hope that strengthened the animals. It made that they they chose to live and they chose to defy the apparent hopelessness of their surroundings. What they what they learnt from the world around them taught them whether there was hope and whether they should choose life or just resign themselves to death. That's the end of that. You can put him away. He's not drowned. He's safe. He's a chef. <laughs> if you're listening on the uh, on the recording, that was a bit of Ratatouille from Pixar, not just. Sam's brain. So um, what I want to ask you tonight is, where is your hope? Where is your hope? So the world that we woke up to after the Brexit referendum was a very strange place, I feel. Um, The country felt really divided. I was... Me and Beth are going to see Sigur Rós, which was probably one of the most life-affirming moments of my life, <laughs> uh, the night before. And then the next morning, we, uh, we woke up and we saw the, um, the result. And uh, no matter which way you voted, I think it was a really, really confusing time and actually a really poisonous time in this country on, on both sides. I'm not, I'm not pushing any kind of agenda here. I think both sides. And we had a really great time in the church afterwards um, where we kind of reunified afterwards. It was, it was a really, really beautiful, beautiful time. Um, and it was, my, uh, it was my personal opinion that it made economic sense to remain in the European Union so I voted that way and most of not all of the people that I work with voted the same way because we were business owners who had received money from the European Union and, and we saw the direct uh, results of it um, and when the result landed me and all my kind of peers were very, very surprised because we just didn't see it going that way um, however what happened next surprised me even more. I saw people decry democracy and dismiss everyone that had voted to leave as stupid. I was saying that they shouldn't have been able to vote. I saw the people kind of like search for a fascism of th- that they agreed with, you know, kind of like, I, you know, as long as you vote the same way that I want, that's fine, you can vote. But if not, you're an idiot. I don't want you here. Um, and I, th- I, th- I just, th- that, that whole time was so uncomfortable for me. Um, and I'm very, very grateful uh, for, the, there's a lot of people in this church who were very, very wise. And actually, uh, I was able to talk to them in that time and kind of, you know, like we were able to share ideas and kind of maybe disagree a bit, but have really good, respectful conversations. And I'm really, really pleased that we, that we had that. Um, but the repeated sentiment at the time was uh, from the, the kind of like lefties was, thanks to you, everything's going to go wrong. We're doomed. This is it. We might as well give up. That's our 15 minutes. We're done. And what shocked me even more was that I saw Christians with this <laughs> same viewpoint. Um, you know, I kind of expect it from a few of my kind of angry communist friends. But uh, I didn't expect it from, uh, I have a friend who started a fight on an airplane to Cuba with a first-class customer. So that was, uh, he, he was he's a niche guy. Um, so yeah, but like I said, what shocked me even more was uh, that I saw Christians with this point of view. And I saw friends of mine who essentially uh, had either lost hope or were just espousing this viewpoint of lost hope that everything was kind of done. And uh, and where was the hope? And as it says in the Bible, if you leave an economic stability of a kind of free trade area, everything's doomed. No, it does not say that in the Bible. It says that there is surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. And That's in Proverbs. Um, Surely there is a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. That's a promise that there is a hope and it's not going to end. That's the promise. Similarly, the way that the, uh, the media and social media in this recent election um, has, again, just been staggering to watch. The vanguards of journalism have been polluted by this kind of fake sensationalist news. They're kind of distracted and uh, they've got these uh, alternative facts coming through and things like that. And it's been very, very hard to filter out um, facts from um, essentially hyperbole. And in recent years, the way that the media works has changed dramatically. Social networks facilitate the spread of ideas faster than a newspaper ever could. Um, And we're able to kind of reach further and reach faster than ever before. And in essence, we've all become journalists, sharing our view and reporting to our our kind of subscribers or sphere of influence. We've been, um, everyone is now a, a publisher. And it's been a, a, basically, it's a bit like the, you imagine the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly, you, you know, you had these factories, and you're able to kind of consolidate something, and one person can do something that, you know, thousands of people were able to do before, With the same sort of things happen with information, the way that we share information in this age. Um, and so what I noticed with this election, um, especially pro- post-Brexit, um, was that a lot of people were, were posting about it and talking about politics. And um, I think that's great. I actually think it's really, really great that in the, the wake of something happening in the country that's kind of like shaking everyone up, people are actually really interested and engaged in governance. And they're really engaged in the way that they're being led and that things are kind of happening in this country. They're not content to just... Uh, sit in the back seat it's what's, what's happened is being political has become fashionable, you know, we've got these 18 year olds talking, you know, like, I mean I hadn't heard of the, the, uh, the DUP you know, that much of it, but I know a lot of 18 year old experts now you know, on Facebook um, and, and 40 year old experts and 60 year old experts um, people being kind of uh, you know, politicised is fashionable, but unfortunately I think the other thing that's kind of happened is um, cynicism it's become fashionable. Um, it's not, it's not uh, talking about how can we fix things, but it's talking and just kind of observing and labeling things that are broken. So uh, I actually studied journalism in university. This picture will make sense. This isn't a picture of me on that New Year's Eve. <laughs> um, so in the university, I studied journalism. That was my degree. Um, and uh, I haven't gone on to be a journalist. Um, And in one of the reading lists in the first year was a piece um, by the journalist John Humphreys. It talked about the need for criticism instead of corrosive cynicism. Um, And it's a sentiment that stuck with me. Um, The difference between the two is that one is trying to make something better and the other is tearing it down without trying to rebuild it. That's a really important distinction. See, the original cynics... I actually found this out the other day, were a Hellenistic Hellenistic school of thought. That's a fancy word for Greek. And uh, they rejected conventional desires and lived a simple life free of possessions. Now, the principles, or some of the principles of cynicism, the original cynicism, cynicism, included shamelessness. Now, this is a man called Diogenes, I imagine. I imagine that's how you pronounce it. And he lived in a tub on the streets of Athens. So he just lived there. That's what he did. People uh, came to see him. The word cynic actually means dog like, which is why he's uh, surrounded by dogs just here. Um, they would defy the norms of society um, and they would live in accord with nature, um, which all sounds kind of good, right? There's like kind of, you know, the stuff in that. Um, but the, the, one of the last things is that they believe that human flourishing depends on self sufficiency. Now, you see, the cynics wanted to tear society down, but their plan for rebuilding it was the self was humanity. And there is a link between the styles of teaching from the cynics and the early church. They actually kind of borrowed uh, in style. Um, And as the kind of cynics went off, the church kind of came up. And a lot of the principles, such as the rejection of materialism and uh, things like that, are kind of compatible with what we believe. However, the ultimate hope of the cynics is imperfect. It's a self. And in Christianity, we have a perfect hope in Jesus. That's the difference. And this leads us to the logical conclusion of today's use of cynicism, the kind of one that we all know is the common sense way of thinking about it. Uh, That if you're hoping humanity, and ultimately imperfect and fallen humanity, uh, you will ultimately be distrustful and be despairing. Um, And as I was doing some research for this, I I found that uh, there's a study that links um, cynical distrust actually to dementia. That it actually this kind of like negative stuff in your brain actually leads to kind of, uh, there's a correlation between the two. This kind of distrust in your early life can lead to a position where you might be very distrustful and kind of it it, it runs rampant. Um, And I read a great great quote by Janet Daly, who's a journalist. She said, cynicism is seductive. It makes you feel that you know something about life that other people do not. Um, and that's just it. To be cynical is to place yourself kind of higher than everyone else. You see the problem with everything. You distrust everything, but you offer no hope or solution. Without trust, you can have no hope. So where is your trust? Well, that hasn't worked. I won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> this is a thing called the shrug. You can Google it later. It's kind of like a a... a it was called a an, uh, an so I'm trying to work out the difference between an emoji and a emoticon, but basically there's a difference when it's made up of text characters. This is made up of a uh, a few Japanese characters, but it's essentially this just like someone going like this kind of shrugging like that, and it's kind of an answer to a lot of things and i I was just going to share it because I think it's a really great picture of um that kind of like well, you know what do you expect Kind of no solution kind of shrugging like this. Um, And it's uh, something that's used on social media a lot. But anyway, because that hasn't worked, it's kind of deflected me. (laughs) Anyway, so where is your trust? Where is your hope? Is it in our government? Is it in your bank account? Is it in the strength of your body? Is it in your relationships? So it says in the Bible, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And it, I was, uh, as I was thinking about this stuff, I was thinking about the hymn where it says, and uh, well, I kind of like, been modernly translated as well, but that line where it says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not kind of like lean on anything too hard, even if it feels kind of sturdy because this world is fading away. That's, that's, that's happening. The things around us are fragile and they'll wear out and they will fail. So after Brexit, um, I think that was probably the last time I kind of uh, impassionedly shared political ideas uh, with people before uh, this this election. It was a really very very funny moment around a dinner table, which uh, with my my grandma and my uncle and my auntie and a few uh, a few of our family. And there was this kind of moment of silence. And in my head, I thought, wouldn't it be really funny right now if I asked? So. Remain or leave? What do you think? Because I was just thinking there's going to be a lot of different viewpoints in this room. And I thought, oh, this that would be really, really funny. So what I did was I kind of went around the room in my head and I worked out, right, okay, Remain. And then sort of did a little mental tally and kind of the silence went on. And then my grandma said, like, so this European Union thing, what do you think? And just kind of, like, literally we had a, some, some awkward conversations. So <laughs> on, the, on the back of that, I decided I was going to take this reset. I was going to kind of um, take a break from talking about it with people for a while. Um. And I realized that a lot of my anger and a lot of my rhetoric had been carried over from a period in my life where I wasn't walking with God. Um, and so as, as a result, like I said, I decided to take a break um, so that I could essentially like, forget my lines. I could break character for a bit. Um, and that's really important because it says, again, in the Bible that the words that you speak come from your heart and that's what defiles you. And what actually I was seeing was that I was thinking, actually, maybe these words that are coming from my mouth aren't actually from my heart. Maybe they're just this kind of like learnt, um, these learnt lines. So I didn't didn't disengage, but instead I engaged with politics through the heart of Jesus for humanity. So instead of trying to intellectualise things and work things out, I decided that I wasn't going to rely on myself. I wasn't going to rely on what I thought was best. I wasn't going to think that makes economic sense. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to try and think about this sort of thing. I'm not checking out, but I'm going to view all of these things through the heart of Jesus for humanity. Um, And you see, my anger came from a genuine place of passion for justice. Um, You know, I I don't like it when there are inequalities and and things like that. Um, But what good have my anger done? See, my politics was purely based on this kind of self-sufficiency. And I was shouting at the crumbling walls of civilization instead of speaking to the architect. That's a good line, that, isn't it? I actually wrote that, so... That's why, that's why, I'll say it again. I'll just say it again. It's fine. I was shouting at the crumbling walls instead of talking to the architect. You see, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. That was Winston Churchill. Um, you see, I don't believe that any form of government can actually fix this broken world. I believe that the only answer for humanity is an impossible love. A love that goes beyond our selfish capacity. And I also believe that I cannot love like that without first experiencing that perfect love. I know that I'm weak. I know that I will fail. And I will fail to be loving all the time. And I will be selfish. And I will be tired. And I will act out of fear and anger. And I will be imperfect. And I know that I cannot love this world back to life myself. But I also know that Jesus loves me. And I know that his love is perfect. And I know that when I am weak, he is strong. I know that when I fail, he will prevail. I know that his love is what the world is longing for and searching for. I know that it is, it is his love that they are chasing. And I know that it is his love that is the sole true hope for a broken world. Not my thoughts, not my ideas, his love. That's it. And I really struggle to, to when, I, when I need to find like a picture of Jesus, I'm quite visual, I quite like to um, kind of like use a picture to, to make a point, because I think it helps people take it home. You know, at the very least, you'll remember Ratatouille, or you'll remember Barack Obama or something like that, and hopefully that'll kind of you know, help you carry it back. But I always really struggle to find a picture of Jesus, because my picture of Jesus is probably very, very different from your picture of Jesus. I really, really struggle with the kind of white cloak Jesus, Jesus to me. And I'll share this story with you another time if you would like. Jesus to me is a man wearing a red Hawaiian shirt. Um, Completely different to kind of any other picture. So I find it really, really um, weird to find it. But this picture just here, kind of, um, when I saw it, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I really, really like that. There's something about that that seemed really, really genuine about the heart of Jesus. Not focusing on trying to get his, like, physical appearance right, but actually capturing the hope of it. I don't know who the artist is. I did really, really search for that. But... um, Google let me down. Imperfect world, eh? Okay. So, uh, yes, the eyes of hope. Viewing the world through the eyes of hope. So how can I view the world through this, the eyes of hope? And I'm certainly not supposed to ignore the obvious. As I said, I'm not supposed to be checking out. And in the world of social media, we kind of craft this bubble um, it's called the, uh, or it's kind of labelled uh, by academics and people that like to talk about millennials um, as the echo chamber. And it's, um, it's this idea that on social networks, you click like, and then Facebook shows you, or, or any other social network you may choose to be on, um, shows you more of it and it shows you less of what you don't like. And so you kind of you see more things you like and kind of, feel, oh, yeah, I like that, I like that, I like that, I like that. And pretty soon, you're surrounded by stuff that you agree with. Um, and it's, uh, there's very little to kind of challenge you in, the, in, the, in, in that. And that's probably the reason that some people were really surprised about the Brexit vote. Other people weren't. Or that some people were really surprised with the results of the election and other people won't. You see, if you read my, my timeline at the time, you thought Corbyn was going to have a landslide. But I kind of, I knew this idea that I was only seeing, you know, kind of like my like lefty friends kind of like it. And I knew that people that were maybe not voting for Corbyn were actually probably staying a bit quiet because it got a bit nasty. Um... And so, yeah, as I said, pretty soon we're surrounded by the stuff that we agree with. And surely we could live our lives with actually only hopeful messages. We could actually very easily just keep liking pictures of sneezing pandas and uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it would, be, uh, it would be there. Hope would be around us. We wouldn't have to kind of deal with anything uh, challenging. But is that really a hope worth believing in? Is that uh, if it can't stand up to the real problems of the world, is that something that we can actually kind of build our life on? You see, uh, the narrative that we surround ourselves on kind of social media and in conversation um, pretty soon becomes our, uh, our truth, our kind of personal truth, but it's not actually reality. So um, actually, in the, again, in the election, I, I came across this um, line. I love the message sometimes, equally sometimes I really don't uh, kind of get on with the message. But sometimes I think it just it absolutely nails it. And in Ecclesiastes 7.18, he kind of paraphrases it as, It's best to stay in touch with both sides of an issue. A person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. So what does that mean? I, I believe that it is very, very important to see what's happening, but again, to view it through the eyes of hope, view it through the heart of Jesus for humanity. And in the wake of all the kind of destruction and things like that that you might see, hold fast the conviction that Jesus is Lord and that this is his creation. Now, that being said, it can be very, very jading to listen to the news. And uh, that's because that isn't, the news isn't really sharing the hope that we have. See, when we listen to voices that aren't hopeful, it becomes really, really important for us to, to guard our hearts. And the way that the media reports things is actually is designed to make you keep watching. They know that, the pe- that people respond to fear, sadness, and kind of absurdity. They dwell on details, of kind of like morbid details, or kind of like they keep going. They love sadness and death because it keeps people watching. And if the message was, look, this has happened, okay, it's really, really sad, obviously, but do you know what? This is not the kind of course of humanity. This is not what's happening in the world. This is not the picture. We don't live in fear. We don't live in, in anything, anything like that. We stop watching. We go, oh, cool. Thanks, news. <laughs> I saw that happen. That's great. I can go on with living my life now. And I won't be like, kind of still watching this 24-hour rolling news cycle. Um, and so that's what they're about. It's kind of like keeping people scared so people keep watching. And so we really need to guard our hearts when we're consuming the media and, and taking in anything from the outside and realign our narrative. And um, I'm sure anyone that's read their Bible would be expecting this. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. That's uh, so the New Living Translation. Actually, in the English Standard version, version, I kind of wanted to kind of like chop and change these verses, kind of copy and paste. Um, the English Standard Version uh, actually says, instead of, uh, determines the course of your life. It says, "For from it it flows the springs of life, the springs of life, the things that kind of replenish and refill us." So, how do we do this? Well, we talk to God. <laughs> That's a good start, isn't it? Um, we talk to God about what we're seeing and what's going on, and we kind of we sit with Him and help Him process it. In the same way that I uh, sat down with people that I really respect here to kind of like go through my thoughts on the, the European Union referendum and kind of reconcile things. With my my belief in God and, and what was going on in the world, with you know my kind of ideas on econo- economics and things like that, um, we need to talk to God and have a, like a, a conversation and kind of like really say, "Oh God, I don't really understand this. I don't, this is this is weird. Like this doesn't match up with my picture of you." And, and ask Him to kind of reveal that stuff um, to us. And our prayer can just be as simple as Elisha's prayer when his uh, when his servant um, came out and saw kind of like the enemies all around him. And Elijah just prayed, like, Lord, just open his eyes. Just open his eyes. And like in this kind of moment, like Lord of the Rings, this guy kind of literally sees the cavalry on the hill. He sees the armies of heaven all around him. And he sees that in this moment where he thought that he was completely outnumbered and that actually hope wasn't there, he, uh, there was something going on that he maybe didn't see or didn't understand. He didn't know the full picture. And in that moment, he understood in an instant the appearance of things is not where we can, should, can, or should measure hope. See, without the eyes of hope, we can look for hope and we can search for it, and we can talk together as uh, hopeful believers. Sorry, with the eyes of hope, we can look for hope and search for it, and we can talk together as hopeful believers. Um, you know what Avril shared at the beginning, just there, those kind of like alternative stories. You know, I, I was actually. I, w- I looked those, that list up earlier and I couldn't find a, a, a suit one. So I'm really glad you shared it because that um, the one about the war in Colombia is, is, is staggering. If you've seen the amount of life that's been lost in that that time, and um, and y- the the general narrative is is that the world is descending into war and chaos, but there's a there's a conflict that's been ended, and there's the general narrative that God's creation has been destroyed, but pandas are doing all right. Like you know, there's there's hope within these things that kind of we don't see that we that we can search out and we can find, and we need to uh, find the good trees. You see, uh, it says in the Bible, no good tree bears bad fruit. Sorry, I was gonna. There we are. No good tree bears bad fruit, and nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit, and people do not pick pick figs. It's harder to say than it looks. Pick. From thorn bushes or grapes from briars. a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouse speaks from what the heart is full of. That's Luke 6:43-45. If you're following along, see we actually need to collect these stories of hope, like these kind of blueberries in this person's hand, just here. Collect them, collect the kind of proof of hope Collect it and store it in your heart And kind of essentially filter your experience through the wor- Of the world through it You know, when you've got these kind of Brita water filters You're filtering the water through the charcoal And it kind of catches all the hard bits That's maybe something that only works in Dorset Where the water is harder than stone You know, kind of like this idea That you need to kind of filter the water To get the purity And you kind of collect these bits to, to get it The narrative of the universe is, is actually really hard to understand But if we believe in Jesus We know that all things work together for good Okay, so we've seen the power of hope. It's literally the power of life and death. We've seen how it can aspire. We can see the uh, the importance of kind of guarding our heart. And then, obviously, what about the Great Commission? What's about what about us carrying this out into the world? The carriers of hope. So uh, the first thing is patience, and the way that we react to something. Um, is just as important as what we say. So, you know, when we're talking about the kind of European referendum and the, all these people that cry democracy and call people idiots and just being absolutely awful to each other and hideous to each other and something I just wanted to distance myself from as, as far from as possible, that we need to be humble and we want to be gentle with each other. We want to be patient with, uh, with each other. We want to make allowance for each other's faults because of our love for each other. We want to make every effort to keep ourselves united in spirit and binding ourselves together with peace. Because um, it says in the Bible, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. That's in Ephesians. See, joy is contagious, and uh, the fruits of hope of, in your life, like you can even just like laughter with friends or um, kind of like just being together, like uh, we were on the beach the other day, and um, Simon um, I actually know Simon's last name. Simon Andy, probably, maybe. Andy might be a surname. Um, it's not that. I'm being pedantic. Uh, Simon had the story that he was on a fishing boat and he kind of went out one night and um, he was just having a picnic on their boat and he'd been out loads of times fishing and someone had come home with nothing and kind of like been out, you know, spending 40 quid and kind of, oh, on the boat, nothing, nothing. And he was just having a picnic with his wife Dee and uh, they saw all these seagulls and they, uh, as the seagulls landed... In the water, he was like, oh, something, something happened here. Have you got a rod? You can see I've got a bit of bait and stuff like that. And he landed like an obscene amount of bass <laughs> into his boat. Like, I, I, I can't remember the, the exact amount, but I think it was something like 30. Like, He literally caught like 30 fish and uh, put, you know, put a lot of them back, but took home about seven or eight bass. And uh, you know, coming from a kind of thing of catching nothing to catching that amount. And he said to me, it gives you hope, doesn't it? Like yeah, it gives me home. That means I might go fishing. If that's the story, like literally, if the story is oh, every time we go out fishing, well, it's basically just drinking a beer, by some water, you know. Like that's that's the, that's one narrative of fishing. The other narrative is you could come home with eight bass. <laughs> that's an amazing story. Catching these kind of this fruit, this fruit from other people's life, sharing the fruit from our lives. Um, very nearly done, guys. So um, me and Beth are both uh, both songwriters and musicians, and we both wrote these these kind of songs in our life we made each other and for me uh, life when I wasn't walking with God and pretty soon I decided I didn't want to keep these songs anymore Um, when I came back into relationship with Jesus I was just like these are hopeless, hopeless stories and um, me and Beth just kind of said something to me that the way that she writes songs now is that um, she tries to be really real about the situation so kind of like still writing songs that are real, things that are really happening, things that are kind of um, reflections of the environment around us but in every single one, don't leave it hanging in darkness. Bring it into the light and sharing hope at the end of it. And that hope may be just literally be as simple as God is in control. I don't see it right now, but I know that he is. It can literally just be, this is darkness, but I know light. Not saying, la, 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 this isn't happening. These things aren't happening You know, looking at the world, and, you know, we could probably all pull up our phones right now and pull together a list of of genuinely terrible things that have happened today, evil that's happened in the world. But will we let that prevail? Will we let that destroy our hope? Will that be the stories that we share? From the fruit of the mouth a person's stomach is filled, and with the harvest of their lips they are satisfied. The tongue is power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Um, And Phil shared that a few weeks ago when he was talking about the power of words and power of hope. Obviously, we've been talking about Steve Backlund, who visited us recently. I wasn't, unfortunately, there. But the thing I've kind of heard from it is that he makes these declarations, these kind of positive declarations on his life. Um, So that's the NIV version. But uh, again, in the message, it says, um, Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or they're fruit. You choose. That's it. You choose. Words kill. Words give life. It's a binary. There's no kind of like gradient in between. Like, like, well, you know, that tastes pretty good, but you're going to need like a, some kind of stomach tablet or something like after that. There's no kind of like, you know, oh, rhubarb, you know. It's, <laughs> it's either fruit or it's poison. And it's your choice. It's literally your choice about what you're sharing. And if you have the choice to offer fruit, like this lovely strawberry, or poison, which are you going to choose? Are the words that are coming out of your mouth or been entered into a status update, or kind of shared with other people, hopeful and loving? Or are they divisive and cynical? Are they sharing the hope that we have in Jesus, that that love? That's the reason that we're here, right? This is the reason that we're not down the beach tonight. We're here because we love Jesus, and he saved us, and that's our hope. Our hope is in him. It's not in uh, kind of getting everything ready for tomorrow morning, for work. You know, I want to pray. I want to. I want to be here. I want to kind of... I want to be sharing my hope in Jesus and I want to be sharing that hope with other people and I want to carry that out on Monday morning to other people that I come across. Are my words a witness to the truth that I believe in? Are Are they a way by which the world will know him? That's a really big question. Are your words a way by which the world will know him? See, I'm still getting this right myself. I still get angry. I still get all these things, but I'm just trying to be more aware of it. I'm just trying to think more about it. I'm trying to not speak out of these kind of this script that I've learned. and I'm trying to kind of readdress things and view everything through that heart that heart of Jesus for humanity. Because when you understand the power of hope, you cannot consciously share anything else. Are you sharing life? Are you sharing death? Are you sharing poison or are you sharing fruit? That's my question for you. I think was gonna kind of hand over for communion.
0: Done. The Archbishop of, of Canterbury um, has sent a message about taking the poison out of politics, and I think that's what Sam has done tonight. So well done, Sam. That wasn't easy, but it was very thought-provoking. Um, and tonight we're going to um, share communion. And uh, I've been thinking about what the world needs: is um, love and unity. And humility. And where do we find those things? But in Jesus. And um, so I was reminded of Philippians 2. I'm just going to read this to you, and then um, we'll have, I think, again about Sam's question. Uh, Don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he first appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honour, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And as we come to communion tonight, the one thing that, unites us is the cross because at the cross we're all the same it's not a case of rich or poor black or white or old or young we're all the same we're all sinners saved by grace we're going to share communion now now what I'd like us to do is when you we pass the, we're pass going to pass the bread around will you hold it and keep it because as a sign of our unity I would like us to take it together and while you're receiving it, we'll have a few moments silence and you can ponder upon what Sam has said. What are our words? Are they words of life and hope? Or are they words bringing fruit? Or are they words of poison and cynicism? And maybe just check our own hearts before we take communion. Now, um, if um, somebody would start to pass the bread around, please. And and, uh, from both tables. Trev, could you grab it? Or Chris, thank you, Chris. That was lovely.